Welcome to the Upside Podcast, powered by Upside Global and hosted by Julian Blinn, founder and CEO of Upside Global. The Upside Podcast is listened to weekly by over 6,000 sports and tech executives from all sports leagues and teams in the United States and around the world. Julian has been developing technologies for professional sports teams for over 10 years and has worked for major tech companies along with sports tech startups. In each episode, Julian interviews global leaders in sports to share knowledge on emerging technology in the sports industry and how these technologies can help improve the performance of individuals and organizations both on and off the playing field. And now here's your host, Julian Blinn. This week, we have the honor to interview a group of sports performance experts. So first, we have Jason Hand, the head of rehabilitation uh, team physical therapies for the LAFC, a top MLS team. So welcome back, Jason. Thank you for having me. Great. Thank you, Jason. Uh, and then we have uh, Dr. Derek Lawrence, the head athletic trainer for the U.S. men's national soccer team. So welcome back, Derek. Thanks, Julian. Always happy to be here. Great. Thank you, Derek. And then we have Kevin Martin, the CEO of the Quick Board. So uh, welcome back as well, Kevin. Thank you, Julian. Happy to be here. Great. So, hey, guys, what I want to talk to you about today is first we'll talk about, uh, you know, what are the seven steps to return to play or return to rehab. And then we'll go over a study from Stanford University on NBA team, which I thought was interesting. And then we'll talk about the importance of mental health uh, to know if an athlete is ready to return to play. Like how important is the mental state of your athlete? So the first question is, uh, you know, what are the seven steps to return to play? And I was coming through, uh, I was reading an article saying that there's a couple of steps, right? So first you have uh, the complete cognitive rest. And then secondly, you have a full return to the team. And then you have a light, you know, they're doing light exercise. And then the fourth step would be to do a running progression. And then after that, you would do non-contact training drills and weight training. And then the sixth step would be full contact practice or training. And then the seventh step would be the, the return to play. So. Do you think this makes sense? It doesn't make sense. I mean, what are your your thoughts as far as the steps to uh, return to play? Uh, I'll jump in. Why not? Uh, you know, it's it's always nice to have steps, whether it's seven, five, three, ten, however many. You got to have a process to it all. Is what it really comes down to because everyone yeah. talks about protocols, right? And you know, each environment is going to dictate a different type of return to play. Um, Soccer is going to be much different than basketball, much different than football, maybe even, I don't know, some Olympic non-contact type sport. And so you're going to have different steps and it's just a matter of defining what, what is it that you find most important. You know, you can have the cognitive steps in there as well. It's just as much as the physical steps, right? And just mm -hmm. coming back again, individualizing it to the, the sport and the athlete is also necessary as well. And some people will probably blend a couple steps. Um, but I think most importantly is just understanding your own process and where it's going to lead you and making sure that you have the ability to check off certain boxes to ensure a safe and efficient return. Because that's one of the big things that we always look at professional sports and their return to play is how fast are people getting back. And that's one of the pressures that we face at this level is like we have to try to push the edge as much as or, you know push that level as much as possible. And maybe it's finding more creative ways to get the physical demand, the cardiovascular demand to make sure that the players are ready. And so, again, just 
having your processes, processes and different steps that built into your own protocol that's really going to come down to it. So I can't say that there's an exact number um, unless they've done a massive amount of research to say that overall people tend to have these seven specific steps. But I personally have not heard of seven specific steps, but looking at the list, I can see why it's that it's that way. And maybe that depends on the severity of the injury, right? If you have a, like an ACL versus just an ankle injury, you probably have more steps, right? Uh, I think it just depends on where you classify those steps, right? Or the way the way it's done. I mean, those long-term rehabs, you're going to have kind of the same steps, but it's just going to mm-hmm. take you longer to get through each step. Yeah. You're going to have a non-contact phase. You're going to have a contact phase. You're going to have the full return. You know, you're going to have the initial acute, you know, recovery, then... Maybe there's a surgery. So what is it initially after that? But it's going to be kind of the same in terms of uh, your progression back to full return. Now, it's just a matter of how quickly you can progress through them. I think that's the only major difference from from my side of things. Okay. That makes sense. Thanks, Derek. Anybody, Jason or Kevin, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Yeah. When when I saw this protocol, I I agree 100% with Derek. It it really depends on what you're dealing with. When I was looking at this seven-step, it it's more aligned with concussions, you know, when they talk about cognitive rest or return to school or return to the team uh, in those situations, it makes complete sense because you're having trauma to the brain. Um, and like if they have trouble even just seeing light or just being around noises and stuff like that, cognitive rest makes, uh, makes sense, especially with kids in school. Like it's in, like if they have a concussion and they go back to school, they're thinking, they're in class, and that's why they get flare-ups. So this cognitive rest um, initial phase is important. Um, when And then it, when it goes to light exercise and running progressions, that makes sense as far as um, light aerobic activity, like similar to what we would do with, um, with concussion athletes in our league. Um, if it was a non-concussion injury, then it's it's mm-hmm. different. It's a, it's a bit, and it, and it depends on what you're dealing with, whether it's muscle joint, um, the severity, of, uh, the severity of it all. It, it really depends when it's, when it comes to more of an orthopedic injury, you can mix in things sooner than later, as long as it doesn't, um, aggravate the, the side of injury. So like you can put vigorous activity for someone with an ankle sprain, but it's with an arm bike, let's say starting off, or you can do a BFR. It's it's rather vigorous in that in nature. So this seven step RTP looks like it's more geared towards a concussion mm-hmm. athlete. When I look at it, yeah, yeah, um, that, yeah. I mean, just you know, obviously going last. Uh, you completely agree with with what uh, Jason and Derek are saying. And it's, yeah, you got to have guidelines, you know, like, uh, like they mentioned and, um, you know, this, you know, and looking at it, it, you know, it's definitely, uh, seems, uh, relevant to, uh, concussions and, um, you know, overall though, uh, no matter the number of steps is, is having guidelines, you know, based on what happened, who the individual is, because, you know, you're going to have one athlete who's, you know, mentally stronger, who's going to be able to, you know, get through something if it's, you know, more of a, you know, um, uh, you know, muscular, musculoskeletal injury, you know, of that sort concussion, of course, that goes out the door. Um, and then, you know, what's their environment, you know, sport that they're returning to, 
And uh, so I think it's, it's, you know, got to be an adaptive, you know, approach in terms of, you know, what your steps are, but, you know, again, supporting what they, they said is, is you got to have a plan and um, you know, that's going to dictate, you know, whether uh, the return is, is successful or not. Okay. I was going to ask also Jason and Derek, right? So in the MLS, for example, how many protocols do you have to follow? And do you think the teams, like concussions, for, I'm sure there's a protocol, but do you think that the teams tend to follow the, the, the protocols? For example, I know the MLS works with this company uh, that has a platform, right? Uh, to, uh, to tell the teams what protocols to follow for concussions. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's head check. check. Yes. Yeah. Um, for, for at least our club, we, we do follow the MLS protocols. Um, especially with concussions, um, it, it's a concussions are a pretty serious thing. So we want to make sure that we are um, as conservative as possible in, in a sense, but conservative yet, yet aggressive. As long as they they complete the steps in a good way, and they're relatively asymptomatic throughout the process, you know, because the last thing we want is is a as a double concussion within a short amount of time. Um, it's not just the sport, it's it's their livelihood as as, as individuals. So, mm -hmm. but w as far as when concussions happen, we, we are pretty diligent with following the MLS protocol. And is there a protocol for like ACL injuries or no? No, no. orthopedic no. injuries, no. Now the concussion protocol is league standard and I would imagine Every team. So here, I think the, the biggest caveat is kind of like what you hear Jason saying, like little words here and they're like relatively asymptomatic, right? So there's some leeway in some of the uh, protocol. If you really look into it, as in they recommend 24 hours in between each step. There's eight steps to this protocol, if I'm not mistaken, unless they've changed it since I've been out. But there's recommendation of 24 hours between. And so you look between the wording and that's why you may see some teams not necessarily doing the wrong thing, but you're able to, again, kind of like we just talked about with the return to play musculoskeletal mm -hmm. steps. So you can blend a couple of the steps together if that person is feeling very well, you know, cause there's some times where if they become asymptomatic within 24 hours, they go through the first step, which is light exercise, 15 minutes. It's just like, that's no problem. So then you can accelerate a little bit maybe. And typically there are a couple of steps that are combined because one of the fewer steps at the end is heading the ball from six yards away you can combine that with a non-contact training so you're going to do like steps five and six together so that's how you may see and uh just from that protocol people are accelerating through the uh, protocol quicker than you know you're like well it's eight steps it should be eight days like how are they playing the next week it's because they're able to combine a couple of steps so that's the big piece there is but doctor uh physician clearance every single step they're, they're reporting symptoms every single step. So there are the checks and balances. Head check health is there, so they have to report it. So there is a, you know, obviously a documentation for each step as well. But most of it is, it's just, it's a guideline. It's not necessarily like a concrete, like you have mm -hmm. to do this exactly this way. But you do have to do it from what they say in terms of making sure you check every step. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, thank you for your comment on that. You guys, thank you for your comment. So. Yeah, the next uh, question that what I want to talk about is I came across a study uh, that was done by a group of Stanford researchers 
Uh, they studied 50 different metrics for every NBA, uh, NBA player for every season since 1980 to see if athletes with ACL injuries are affected by the injury in their style of play and drive tendencies uh, when they return to uh, to the game. So according to the study, right, so the players that were able to make it back to the NBA after the ACL tear came back at a similar level of performance to what you would expect from a player who never had an ACL injury in the first place, right? So the comment from the researchers was, you know, it was surprising, but super encouraging for us and players everywhere. And it was also determined that players with high career driving tendencies experience ACL tears at a rate of 5.2% compared to the guys with lower drive tendencies who tore their ACL at a rate of 3.8%, right? And then the, la the last key takeaway was that when ACL injury, in ACL injured players return to the NBA, their style of play did not alternate much. So, you know, one might wonder if a former injured player might play it safe when he's back, but apparently, you know, it's difficult to change a player's individual style to prevent injuries after so many seasons of developing, you know, injuries. So, I mean, were you guys surprised by the results? Or, uh, you know, in your case, you know, for example, Kevin, right, in basketball with the NBA, were you surprised by this? And, and maybe Jason and, and uh, Derek in soccer, right, in the MLS, have you seen similar tendencies or what are you guys thinking? Y'all got y'all want to go first? I when I when I was reading I, you sent me the study and I, I looked it up online. Yeah. I guess one of my questions was like, okay, the ones the NBA players that made it back to the NBA, they came back at a similar level of performance. My question is, how about the guys that didn't go back to the NBA? Like, how did they look? Um it's fine and dandy, like the ones that made it back. And it, in that sense, it doesn't surprise me that they came back. There's something about yeah. their rehab process or something about the athlete that got them back to close to 100%, it seems. But there's also the subset of population that have a harder time. Or they never um, came back. Yeah, I, I think it's the article really just focuses on the success stories. Yeah. And maybe not the ones that didn't. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it'd be interesting yeah. to know like age. Was it was it correlated with age? You know, were the guys that didn't come back, they were kind of towards the end of their their career. Age or even the time, it goes back to 1980. The you know, yeah. the athletes are, yeah. are a bit different. The style of play is is different. You know, I, I grew up I was born in 80 and I watched Magic and, and the Lakers back then. And then you watch the style of basketball now is very very different a lot more athletic now so as a general study it's great but it, i think i would like to kind of see more of the specifics yeah um versus just blindly saying okay there stanford is right in, <laughs> in this yeah. case so yeah i think we need more more i guess more details about you know age groups and the one that you know didn't return right, right. <laughs> so yeah i agree but I mean, it's go ahead. So the, I mean, I would say I'm for the ones that did return that it's not too surprising yeah. know, I guess from my perspective, because I mean, the guys, I mean, they're naturally confident, right? I mean, that's why they, they are where they are. And, um, you know, I think they can overcome, you know, a lot of things uh, from a mental uh, perspective and um, you know, in terms of, 
modifying how they play. Um, I mean, they've played the game pretty, let's call it the same way all their life, or at least, you know, at that, that phase where, you know, they really, you know, came up in in college and then got into the NBA. So, I mean, it's somewhat their identity within Mm -hmm. the sport. So it'd be tough to quickly all of a sudden change how you're playing, Um, but not impossible. Um, You know, but at the same time, they're coming back from injury. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's a whole nother transition to, you know, wrap your head around, well, now I'm going to have to play this way. And, and so that's, that's a whole nother process that they would have to adjust to. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- there's always the other things, you know, they fear that their value is based on their style of play. So if they change is, is, am I going to have less value? And, um, you know, do we already have a guy on the team who, who does that? you know, better than I would be able to. And so, I mean, kind of collectively, that's that's overall, you know, the takeaway, um, you know, but, you know, I think Jason brought up, you know, the good point is the age of it as well. I mean, rehab, you know, look at surgeries and rehabs. I mean, those those alone look completely different, mm-hmm. um, you know, than they did then. So, yeah, I mean, age, you know, what, what was the age? What were the ages of the guys that didn't return? Uh, but maybe more importantly is, um, you know, were, were those all in the eighties mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that didn't get back because I mean, it used to be thought of as what career ending potential career ending injury. Right. Yeah. And I remember, I think Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, when he had a, you know, was going through some tough time, right. He got out of the top 10. And if you guys remember, he had a bad injury, right. He was coming, he was starting again for almost, you know, the bottom, I mean, not the bottom of the ranking, but I'm pretty sure at the time I heard like he had to change his style of play, like his serve or something. But hey, he came back, you know, number one again. So uh, another friend of mine in the NBA, uh, I won't say who that is, but you know, he's part of a, 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 you know a player staff, right? So he works for an NBA player, and on his staff, somebody on the team said, "Hey, uh, I think this player in the NBA should change his shoot." And they said, "No, no, 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 you don't want to do that," uh, but you know, it's possible, but that's the last thing you want to do as far as changing the way somebody shoot a kick or, you know, it could be uh, devastating for the player, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, hey, the, the other topic I want to discuss is... Uh, yeah, uh, trying yeah, I was going to say something. Sorry, my mute was on. I was I trying to navigate this whole thing. No, I was going to say, like, that's, that's their identity, as, as you mentioned, and elite athletes will find a way to get back on to the the court, the field, to feel the same way they do. And that's where the confidence level is going to come from. And that's something that we as clinicians have to make sure we kind of, you know, cater to as we go through the rehab process as well. Um, Because you'll see some very frustrated athletes if they don't feel that they're able to do what they've done before. And typically you'll see that early on in the on-field return to play because they are overcoming this whole mental debilitating, you know, subconscious, like holding you back a little bit. Like I just injured myself that way. I got to make sure I build myself to be able to trust that I can do that. And so we always have to be aware of that in the rehab. And maybe that's again, going back to the age of the, the study is how the rehab has changed to make sure that these players are able to do what they've always done. And that's the most important piece, I think for everyone here to understand when we're doing we're talking about any kind of return to play or, you know, players coming off these injuries. It's just you have to really hone in on making sure that they are who they are. And 
because uh, if not, then yeah, they they'll they'll play if they can, but it's just not going to be the same. Uh, basketball may be a little bit different now because everything's guaranteed contract, so there's maybe not <laughs> incentive to uh, really push to get that level. But again, they're elite athletes, they're elite competitors, and they're they're there for a reason. And so I think you're going to see that a lot more in the rehabs there that they want to be the same player and. Of course, when you mentioned like the higher rates of ACL incidents, mm-hmm. those who drive to the basket more often, I mean, look at what they're landing on all the time. So, of course, you're going to have some or cutting some simple things like that. So, and I, I, would, I would almost believe that the older players in the 80s, early 90s are the ones that probably tore the ACL more often driving because the style of play has changed, as we mentioned, mm-hmm. more three-point shots, more open shot. Like, you don't see guys just driving to the lane every single time. You, some guys, yeah, but it's to kick it out for a three-point shot now because that's just how the, the, the whole environment has changed in the NBA, right? Yeah, I think the with the players that are driving to the basket, now you're mixing in more contact. Now you have contact ACLs and not just non-contact ACLs. That, that might be one of the contributing factors to like the data. So I, I was... It, I, it's good to see with our conclusions, but it's also good to reason why it may be that mm-hmm. way. And, and I think that's exactly what we're doing right now. We're just trying to make sense of it all. Yeah. Uh, well, which brings kind of to the next topic, but you know, there's been a lot of talk about, uh, I should say mental health, uh, as far as return to play. So, you know, the, the vast majority of athletes when they're, you know, they're ready to return to full practice and competition um, as they're medically clear, right? By the, the team physicians, the staff, but sometimes some athletes, you know, they may not be ready, they may be ready physically, but mentally they're just not quite there yet, right? So, uh, which reminds me of a company you guys have probably heard of called Rezo. Uh, they have this VR system uh, that a lot of Premier League clubs are using when a player is coming back from ACL injury, they kind of get immersed into that VR space or VR training system, uh, maybe to give them a bit more confidence so they'll be more ready to go back to play. So I guess my question is, you know, how important is mental preparation in an athlete return to play? Which is kind of remind me also of biofeedback, right? So for example, AC Milan, they used to have those mind rooms where, you know, the players were not allowed to play the next game if they were not going to this mind room and watching films about, hey, you know, them missing shots. So they, you know, I guess biofeedback is one of those techniques also being used by some teams to get the players get back to uh, get, you know, get get ready to to go back mentally, right? So anyway, what what are your thoughts on the importance of mental preparation, right, in an athlete return to play? I I'll I'll start. I, I guess I would say it's not just at the return to play state; it starts day one. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's a long-term injury or even a short-term injury, and just getting to know your athlete that much better and understanding is this the first time that they've had a major injury? Is this the first time they're having a muscle injury? Are they young? Have they have they been through 10 of these before? Everyone's a little bit different on how um, you target them in the rehab process and as you talk about their progression. Um but it, I think that's the first thing. It starts day one throughout the process, no matter what the injury is. Um, and if you fast forward to the part where, let's say they're going back into partial team training or whatnot, it's in your RTTs 
leading up to that, it's creating situations that can mimic that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But nothing is going to replace what it feels like to have 20 plus guys around you going at full mm -hmm. speed. But so in the in the rehab process, it's getting them comfortable designing drills that can mimic that as much as possible. And then as they return to the team, it's having that relationship with him, having the relationship with the technical staff, seeing where they're at, if they can have them as a neutral or um, so there's less con or no contact. And then we allow light contact depending on the injury. Um, if it's a hamstring when he's in big spaces, that's when he's really going to get tested. If it's coming, if it's relative to the high speed running. Um, I, I think those are all little bits and pieces that you can manipulate in the training, but also when you're talking to the athlete and like, Hey, this is the plan you're going to end this drill. How do you feel? And they may tell you that they're fine, but if you know them well enough and you've seen them when they're relatively healthy and you watch, it's just holding them accountable to telling you the truth afterwards. And, uh, they're always going to push because they want to play. But if you can tell inside that things are just not right and you get it out of them, and that's a time to kind of not stop the process. It's about to reevaluate the process and talk to them about the pros and cons. And let's say they're, they're scared that they're going to get hurt more. And then it's like, based on what we've seen so far, you've checked these boxes, this, 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 and that the chances of you getting hurt, I'm not saying there's zero chance, but the chances are relatively low, especially if we're doing this. How do you feel about this? So I think that relationship is super important instead of just forcing them out there um, without any guidelines. So I was going to ask you, so if let's say you're you're part of the Brazilian national soccer team, right? Seleção, you got to play like Neymar, who's got a lot of injuries, keeps happening, 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 right? How, how do, what do you tell him? How do you get him more, you know, for, I guess, getting ready mentally to go back without having the fear of getting hurt? You know, because that's the way he plays, right? He tends to keep the ball a lot and doesn't pass the ball as much. That's why those guys just hit, you know, the, the foot or the knee. I mean, how do you guys, how do you get a player like that to be comfortable and be ready mentally, right? I would almost argue he doesn't have that issue because he's always getting injured every time he gets back. <laughs> so he's he's kind of like the NBA study where he's not changing the style of play based on any kind of injury history. He is who he is, and that's what's made him become one of their – made him all-time leading goal scorer for the Brazilian national team, right? Yeah. So when you have players that are fearless, I guess is the way I probably – as much as I don't uh, – agree with some of his antics in terms of jumping around and stuff, but he's fearless in the fact that he's coming back from each of these injuries and still just holding on to the ball and getting hammered and, you know, going down to play in Copa America and the Coleman bowl. Like it's not easy. And so someone like that, I mean, that's, it's, it's a, it's a fine balance because you have someone who's always getting injured because of the way he plays. So you're like, well, we prefer you to kind of back off a little bit, but he's great because of the way he plays. And so, I mean, I think in the terms of the mental aspect, you want someone who's fearless, but also a good balance of common sense too. I mean, especially going through the rehab process of getting them ready. Um, because mental, mentally, can't, mentally, re, I guess, 
in the in the sense of rehab, if someone is a little bit mentally weak, it it also produces a major challenge of progressing them to get over that hump. And sometimes you do have to create a re a reevaluation process if they're not willing to do that next thing, even though you showed them like, hey, this this and this. So sometimes it's getting another clinician involved to like, all right, let's try something else and just seeking other answers. But sometimes it just still comes down to whether that player is willing to take that risk or not. And that's can be one of the biggest challenges for anybody. But I was going to say, so based on my conversation with people close to Neymar, their recommendation not for him to change the way he plays, pass the ball more, don't keep the ball too much. But to your point, I don't think he's going to change the way he plays. That's the way he's been playing all, all his life. So he's not going to do that. Most likely, right? Right. That's who he is. Right. So, um, I think the beauty the, telling Jordan not to pass the ball. Come on, <laughs> the, just telling Jordan to pass the ball more often. Yeah, right. I yeah. think the beauty of what we do is that we deal with so many different, not just physical specimens, but mental specimens. Like, I, I <laughs> you're gonna have the one that will run through a brick wall, and you have the hypochondriac on the other side. And you have to be able to read through the entire situation of whatever the injury is and the personality and the person's tendencies to make the best decision for the player and the club at every at any given moment, all day, every day, pre-training, post-training, middle of the night. It's it's mental warfare for not only the athlete, but everyone working with them. So um but that's what's that makes it frustrating and and fun at the same time i would say yeah and i was going to ask you guys uh so i was talking to an nfl team the other day um and and they told me that in the nfl right it's pretty common i think you have a sports psychologist as part of the in the team right whether it's a consultant or but somebody who's going to help the players mentally right now i don't know about the mls or the nba but is it fairly common for an NBA team to have somebody, let's say a sports psychologist or someone like that? Or no, it's not common. LAFC, we have a mental performance coach. Okay. Um, but I, I guess every club is different on how they utilize it. I, I think at the end of the day, is you have to develop trust, like I said. And then often, oftentimes it's it's the physios and the athletic trainers and the massage therapists, the ones that put their hands on them because mm -hmm. that's your time to talk. Like, let's say they're on the table for X amount of minutes. Yeah. You're talking, you're, you're shooting the shit where if you're going with a mental therapist, you're going there to talk. Sure. And a lot of these guys may not be ready or open to it, but it naturally happens when they're on the table with us mm -hmm. because we spend so much time together. Um, so it depends on the club and their model and, and what they feel is important. So you cannot becoming a psychologist yourself. I, I, I kind of am, I would say. Yeah. I, I would vouch for Derek is the same. So low, low level <laughs> psychologist for sure. I will say a lot of times in MLS area, it's still just unfortunately just comes down to money and yeah. you have to find a way to afford someone who's going to have this role that isn't as used as much as we may believe that we want them to be used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, it, you know, the bond, you know, like you said, and the trust uh, with the staff is is critical, um, you know, whether or not they want to, you know, uh, go talk to the mental mental uh, performance coach. Yeah, 
tough to say. Like you said, they might might clam up, you know, when they go in there. But it's a it's a natural environment, um, you know, with you guys in the the training room, um, you know. But even you know, let's say a high school athlete. I mean, it's it's the role that you know uh, you know sports physical therapist takes on, um, or the athletic trainer at the the school uh, handling part of the, the rehab and mm-hmm. and helping them through that. And you know, at the the same time, I think um, like. For instance, Kevin Wilk, um, you know, I've attended quite a few of his courses and it, you know, in his progressions, it is, I mean, he wears them out to where they're going to be so confident in what they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's no doubt left. So I think there's a little bit um, in terms of return to play, a, um, uh, you know, that it's, it's got to be, you know, addressed in, you know, uh, during the process to to help them achieve that confidence and and anything from objective interventions, you know, to assessments where they can see themselves objectively getting better, just like anything you do in life. If you can see you're objectively getting better at something, all of a sudden your confidence is is growing. And then, you know, complexity is, you know, start single task, you know, exercise specific, dual task, triple task, um, you know, to, to um, you know, start really, um, you know, applying you know, more demands on the nervous system. And then you, you progress from exercise specific to more sports specific demands, you know, in that same progression. And, and then, you know, like, uh, you know, Jason said, then you got to kind of get some, some bodies in there, whether it's other staff members where, you know, you're trying to get them comfortable where they're not going to all of a sudden, uh, you know, freak out when, when somebody's, you know, right, right next to them or running next to them. Uh, so it's, I think uh, the rehab, process itself can help with that uh but at the same time that that physical therapist that athletic trainer does play a critical role for the athlete to kind of lean on and um and you know provide that athlete with support and um you know build their confidence you know um you know from that that mental perspective that makes sense and i don't know you know when when you go to school to become a athlete trainer or or, you know, a rehab person. I mean, I'm not going to teach you much about psychology, but, you know, there's going to be something that they should include, you know, moving forward. If they haven't done that before, right? So. Yeah, I think something that I love about, like, talking with you guys and even just your podcast in general, like, number one, like, with this podcast, we talk a lot about tech and how mm-hmm. we use that in sports. But at least when we're talking about the rehab side, we really like to weave in the whole personal component. And yes, this objective measure can tell you this, or this technology can help enhance this X, Y, Z. But in in a lot of cases, because we're in the trenches with these guys, because we built that relationship, we can have like hard conversations, not just about getting stronger. It's Mm -hmm. about like, like if it's a younger player trying to get back on the pitch after an injury and there's some that, don't work as hard as other guys. So it's like having that hard conversation and like, Hey, it comes down to this. Do you want to be a professional? Do you want, do you want to make a living from this? Mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, now that you're playing with the big boys, you can't get away with just your talent. So this is why these things are important. I know this data may not mean anything to you, but it means a lot to what this club wants from you and your success moving forward. So it's just having hard conversations like that. That's how you can get the buy-in at times. 
Um, but if you can put it all together, you can have a successful player. You can have a successful team. Yeah, uh, that makes total sense. Um, well, look, uh, you know, we at the end of the podcast, but I want to thank you guys for your time again today. It was insightful, so thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Julian. Thank you very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. We'll do it again some other time. Yes. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening. To access past episodes and other research, articles, and analysis of sports technology, please visit our website, theupside.us. Subscribe to the Upside newsletter and receive full access to our sports tech business letter and website. Royalty-free music is provided by ibaudio.com. The Upside podcast provides timely insights and interviews with global leaders in sports technology. Until next time, keep looking to the Upside.